Please pray with me this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be in your presence, God. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for a community of people that want to come together and, and hear about who you are and, and God, how amazing your grace is and how easy it is to, to overlook or take advantage of that grace. And Lord, today I pray that you would tune our hearts to understand the depths of your grace, and it is for all, it is for all people, for all nations. And that brings glory to your name. When we as your body, as people that believe, would extend that grace, and be quick not to judge, but be quick to love uh, as you have loved us. You loved us while we were still sinners, and uh, that is amazing grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. All right. Well, coming off uh, a hard loss last week. But the Lord did teach me something during the Super Bowl, mostly during the commercial times, uh, as we were seeing these commercials that end up costing uh, these guys $166,000 a second to uh, produce a 30 to 45 second clip to tell us that their product is better than the competitor's product. All right? So they spent a ton of money. That money does not include the, the, the actresses and the actors and the celebrities that they paid to, to um, push their, their product. Right? So that's a lot of money just to get yourself on TV for a, you know, a four-hour window. But the reality is that what we saw on those commercials what we don't hear are the truths about all those things that look so nice and packaged. Um, we saw movies. Hey, come watch my movie because it's better than all the other movies that are coming out right now. We saw Skittles, right, that it would actually uh, fulfill your dreams. That's what the Skittle commercial was, was saying, that, hey, if you eat Skittles, your dreams will be fulfilled. I don't even know what that means. Uh Saw that Anthony Hopkins was a fan of TurboTax, probably never used TurboTax in his life. Uh, we saw that Doritos will make you smarter. Maybe. Uh, we saw that Alexa on Amazon will just make you completely lazy. Um, you can just dial Alexa up anytime. Mountain Dew, Spark will give you energy more than some of the competitors like Red Bull with wings. And we saw that Audi will make you just uh, the coolest person on the earth. So we saw all these different commercials, and those were kind of the top ten commercials that, that made the headlines. And we don't hear the underlining truths of those things, right? Well, Skittles won't fulfill your dreams, and Doritos won't make you smarter, and Audi won't make you any cooler than you already are. But these commercials were, were, were glamorous. They were made to, to draw us in, to make us think that, that if we come to this, this, this conclusion that we should buy into this, then it's going to do something for us. We're going to get something in return. Well, today's passage, as we heard it read, is that we're talking about uh, the temple and Jesus coming in and cleansing the temple. And the passage does exactly what the commercials were trying to do uh, during the Super Bowl, get us drawn in. To come in to consume, only to be disappointed. To find out that what we came here for is not what we really are getting once we're in, inside. But instead of the commercials, the commercials are the temple. And instead of the Super Bowl, it's Passover. Where Passover is kind of a big deal. 
Historians would tell us that there's 2.5 million people that would pass through and around the temple on this, this Tuesday that we're talking about here in, in Mark 11. 2.5 million would pass through or be around the temple. There's not really a good economic understanding of how much money would be spent, but all those families would be purchasing a spotless lamb or some sort of animal that would uh, be a sacrifice based off their economic status. So there's a lot of money exchanging of hands and people buying and selling, right? In the text today, I hope that we see two things. So I'm going to try to pull these two things, not hopefully pull them out, but hopefully you see them. That Jesus is uh, extending grace by exposing and declaring death to fruitless religion. And two is that Jesus is proclaiming life to those who, li- who believe and worship at the cross. Mark 11, we start off and Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And so he goes straight to the temple. And he sees what's in front of him. He sees the, the consumerism. The market's full. People are buying. People are selling. He comes in that night and it's too late for him to do what he needs to do. But we see that in Luke 19 that he's saddened by this. He actually weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over what's happening in the temple. He knows that once he enters the temple tomorrow that uh, the religious leader is going to be pretty upset. He realizes that this is going to be how they justify plotting to kill him and bring him to his death. He knows that this is how Jesus will end up ending his life. And it's the week that Jesus has planned and the Father has planned for his time has arrived. His time has come. We see that throughout the book of John where Jesus is saying, my time is not here yet. But now the time has come for Jesus to go to his death. And so it's kind of this climatic moment where Jesus is going to come and he's going to, to, going to declare death. But with grace... Exposing death and and fruitless religion, which was a huge issue inside of of Jerusalem. We see the Jews in the temple and and they're they're making the temple a place of profit for their own sake. And that's not satisfying for for Jesus as he knows that the temple is made for for God to be worshipped. So in verse 12 says, on the following day he comes in. But there's something that happens before he makes it to the temple. He sees a fig tree in the distance and he goes over to the fig tree to eat. And so why a fig tree? Why is Jesus using this fig tree as as an example? Well, it's not the first time we've seen this. First of all, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So he has he has man like instincts. He's hungry. The disciples are hungry. So he picks a real tree that's going to produce real food to to satisfy a real hunger. So he walks over to this tree, and as he gets closer, he realizes the fruit is not there. From a distance, the leaves are green, they're glossy, the shade of a fig tree is inviting to break away from the morning heat. Even the taste of having those figs in your mouth before is satisfying. I want that fig. And he comes in, and as he gets closer, he examines the tree and examines that there is no fruit in this tree. And so he takes this moment to expose that this facade of a tree is an opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson. And so he looks at the disciples and he begins to map out this parable. 
And it's a real parable, a parable that they're going to soon experience inside the temple. He says, you guys see this tree? It's got no fruit. And we're going to, to a place that looks beautiful from the outside, but when we get in, we're not going to see the fruit. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the fig tree as an example of, of people that are non-repentant of sin, that are disobedient. We see Israel being highlighted as the fig tree, as this parable throughout the Old Testament. The first time we see the, the fig tree or the fig leaf is in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit and they realize, I'm naked and ashamed. And they do whatever they can to cover themselves, to cover their shame. And God shows up on the scene and says, who told you that you were naked? And he, he sacrifices an animal at that moment and he covers him. He extends grace in the garden the very moment that Adam and Eve are trying to do it themselves. Cover their barrenness with a fig leaf. God shows up on the scene and he sacrifices an animal and covers them. All foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do on the cross. It's a beautiful picture of what we see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Israel is at a point in Isaiah 29, we see that, that they are coming under judgment. That they've been honoring God with their lips, but their heart is far from God. And I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that. I honor God with my lips so often, but my heart is so often in a different place. And really, truly trusting in the Lord for everything that I really need. Yeah, God will provide, but I've got to work harder. God will mend this relationship, but I've got to do everything I can to make sure things are right. And I think there is that, that fair balance of finding what is right and what is not having faith. God is extending grace by exposing and declaring death to a fruitless religion. And I think we're all probably guilty of that on some level where we start relying on our own idolatry to say, God, I got it. I can do this. And that is fruitless religion. So we see in, in verse 14, he says that he looks at the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. Jesus is using the situation with a fig tree as a parable to the temple. This beautiful temple that they're walking into is gorgeous on the outside. People go there to, to seek God, to worship God. But word's gotten out that if you need to buy a lamb or if you need something for the Passover, then it's now the market. And so people are starting to head towards the temple, this beautiful thing that's supposed to be a place where we would worship God and they're going to exchange and to buy and to sell and to make a profit and to get something for them themselves. The cool part about this fig tree is that Jesus is using this fig tree as a parable to the temple. And this fig tree ends up being one of the most fruitful trees that we see throughout the gospel. Because it's declaring with grace that this religion needs to die. So that we can have true life and a true spirituality, a true relationship with who Jesus is. And so in verse 15, he moves on down to Jerusalem and he enters into the temple. And he begins to drive out those that are selling 
and buying in the temple. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This is where we have to look and say, man, this is where God is extending grace. I know that there's this robust way of that Jesus is grasping their attention and he's teaching them a lesson and he's flipping over tables and he's kicking over seats and he's, and he's telling people to leave that are there for the wrong reason. Israel was, had a call as a chosen nation to make God's name great, to draw attention and, and re- reflection to who God is as a God that would worship, a God that would save. And Israel had failed. They had been disobedient. Jews in the temple there, the religious leaders there, were making it all about self-righteousness. What can I get from these people that are coming in and out of this temple? And as you entered into the temple, you'd first enter into the, the, gentle, uh, the, Gentile, the court of Gentiles. The court of Gentiles would be this huge area, 300 feet by 900 feet. Think about three football fields stacked beside one another. And you'd walk into this, and Jesus walks in, and he doesn't hear the songs and the praises of God, but he hears the, the auctioneering and the trading and the changing of money. People buying and people selling. And though Jesus has a gentle and humble in heart, he comes not with weakness here, but to establish his authority through his Father, to reclaim this environment, this culture, that these people were here, if they're going to be in this place, they're going to be here to, to worship. And so he starts moving out the buyers and the sellers. But who's left? Who's left in, in the crowd there? Well, we see that later on that the, the, the religious leaders are still there. And then at the very end it says that there's a crowd that's, that's hanging on to every word that he's teaching. So we know there's religious leaders and we know there's a crowd of people. Who's in that crowd? Maybe people that were scared, paralyzed by what's happening. Who is this guy that, remember, a man that comes into a 300 by 900 square foot area and grasps all the attention of everyone that's in that area. In that week, there's 2.5 million people that are passing through. I don't know how many people are in the courtyard at this very moment, but he's able to grasp their attention. And so, yeah, I would be scared. Like, wow, who is this man with such divine authority to capture the attention of everyone in this courtyard that everything comes to a screeching halt? So, yeah, there may be people there that were scared. Maybe people that were curious. Who is this man that has such great authority to, that when he speaks, people will listen? Who is this man that knows the difference between unrighteousness and righteousness? Maybe they're there because they came to worship and instead, oh, I can pick up a gallon of milk while I'm here. And forgot the true reason of why they entered into the, the temple in the first place. Israel was charged to make God's name great as a chosen people. And they had been disobedient. And so now Jesus has come into the temple to restructure and reestablish the purpose of why this temple even exists. Okay? So he starts to restructure. And he starts to teach. Which again, is that beautiful grace. He flips over some tables. He kicks over some chairs. And I, we're not there, and we can't, can't read between the lines, but he begins teaching. 
Kind of like maybe I'm teaching now. I'm not sure if there's righteous anger in his voice. If that's what's grabbing the attention, we don't know. But we know that it says that he, he moves tables and chairs. He gets their attention and he begins to teach. And people are hanging on his every word. I think that's grace. I think about when you have to rebuke a child. And there's a little bit of anger there. But then there's like, but I've I got to have this, this right degree of, of gentleness and, and love and kindness so that they really get it, right? Parents out there. And so it's the same thing. As I look into it, I look at it and I say, man, Jesus begins to, to extend such beautiful grace to these religious leaders. And not only does he extend grace by teaching, but he extends grace by teaching the Old Testament. He, he's teaching a text that they would be familiar with, Isaiah 56. He takes pieces of that and says, guys, I know you know this, and so let me remind you one more time. He's extending grace to the religious leaders, to the ones that have these huge blind spots, the ones that think that they are right. So often you and I, we would say, let's just cast those guys out and let's go after the ones that are far away from God. Well, where are the Pharisees? I think it's a good question for us to ask is that Jesus, does Jesus care and love the Pharisees? And I think he does. I think that we can see that right here is that he's being gentle. He's teaching them. He's using the text that they would be familiar with. Isaiah 56, which proclaims two things. Jesus, in the context of Isaiah 56, he's saying that the coming kingdom of God is near and that he is establishing himself in the position of king. That's not the kind of king they're looking for. One that just earlier rode in on a donkey. And the second thing that this text, Isaiah 56, is, is it's global. That it's not just for Jews, but, but all people would come and worship God. Let me read the text. Isaiah 56, 6 through it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. He's teaching these Jewish leaders, it's not just about you. You're the ones that I've gathered from the beginning. I've chosen to make my father's name great. And you've been disobedient over and over again. And so no longer will I just rely on you, but it'll be open for all to come and to pray and to worship and to be accepted that, that the Gentiles, their sacrifice would be accepted by the father on his altar. Jesus is caring greatly for these Pharisees right now. And he's caring greatly for everyone that's listening to his words. He's teaching them. This is grace upon grace. They've come to, in sin and they're doing this thing that's self-driven and self-righteous. And God's saying, there's grace even in this. Let me teach you. Let me teach you through a, a text that you're familiar with. That God established this a long time ago. That this would be a place for all people to come and to worship. This court that this is happening in has a special place. I think in God's heart. It's for those that are far away from God, that were outside of Judaism. For the Gentiles to come in and have a safe place 
to, to question, to wrestle with God, to pray, to worship. And these religious leaders who hated the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't pay homage to them said, you won't be in here unless you're going to be exchanging money and we get a profit from you being in this building. And Jesus is not pleased. He says, this is a place that my father will be worshipped. And so he reestablishes that, but he reestablishes it with such grace and such care. We learn in this text that we have been like the Pharisees over and over again. I judge, I look at people, I struggle with, with the acceptance. I see people that have issues. I have issues. Who am I to judge? And for 2,000 years, there will be generation after generation of people that would have a pharisaical heart. And Jesus knew that. And I think that's why he's extending grace even to the Pharisees that are in the temple at this point. If we read the New Testament, we see that there are a lot of big names that were once Pharisees that are now disciples of Jesus. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that Jesus has a heart for, for the Pharisees. But the bigger picture here is that Jesus is coming into this temple to reestablish and restructure what the temple worship is going to look like. He comes in and he looks at these people and he says, No longer will you worship like you're worshiping in this temple. But I'm going to destroy this temple. I'm going to cleanse this temple. And if you're going to worship, it's going to be worshiping through me as the king. The king that you're not expecting, but the king that has come to save all of you. He's saying that, that worship is no longer going to happen in a building, but it's going to happen in our hearts at the foot of the cross. Now we get to see that on the other side of this teaching because we see the gospel and how it's played out. But these in the temple are like, what are you saying? In Mark 14, the Pharisees go back and say, he said he's going to destroy this temple and then build it back up in three days. Well, Jesus did say that, but he said he wasn't going to use the hands of men to do it. That he would be the temple, the place that we would gather and worship. Our worship would be in Christ at the cross, not in buildings. We get the opportunity to gather, to come here together. To celebrate that. To worship. But this building is a building. Where we worship is at the foot of the cross. We worship Jesus. And we can worship Jesus anywhere. We don't have to go through a building any longer. We don't have to go through a priest or, or a Pharisee or a religious leader any longer. We can come right in front, directly to the Father. And have a wonderful, beautiful conversation just with Him. In verse 18, we see that the chief priests are hearing what Jesus is saying. And it says that, that they began to seek a way to destroy him. For they feared him because the crowd was astonished by his teaching. Jesus captures the attention of all the people in the, the court of Gentiles. And he properly places the attention where it's supposed to be. And that was on God. On him through the king to come. Is that not us? During the week, how often we get so distracted or we get so blindsided by we have this focused thing that we need to do that we forget about why and the ability to even do these things that we're doing. Raising our kids, we get so angry 
because they're not doing what we want them to do. And we get blindsided that we forget that it's an honor to be able that God has given us this gift to raise these children. Work in a place where you get to live out to be a light in a dark world. But we get so pigeonholed to, to think, oh, I've got to finish status quo or hit my deadline that we forget that this is an opportunity to be a light. And that's what he's doing is that when we become so small-minded and so small-focused, that that becomes our, our, our religion, our work, our children. These things that could be used to, to honor God are now becoming idols. And Jesus comes to I've come to cleanse that. Don't think that way any longer. But remember, everything that we do, everything that we have the opportunity to do is a way, an opportunity to worship, to worship our God. And so he grabs their attention, and the Pharisees are scared. And so they're saying, we've got we to gotta find out a way to destroy this man. And then they leave. And we see in verse 19, And the evening came, and they went outside the city. And as they passed by the, by the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. And through the rest of the chapter, he goes on to establish that we have to have faith in God. He's establishing his authority and the call and the charge for us to have faith in who he is as our king. Just think about the imagery. Right? This is a 24-hour window. The guys are going into Jerusalem. They see this fig tree. It's lush. It's green. It's beautiful. They go into a temple. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's inviting. They go into the temple. Jesus wrecks it, cleanses it. And teaches and captures with grace all the people that are, that are there. He teaches the lesson that he is the king that is to come. And that, that we can repent and believe. And he leaves. And then the next morning, the guys pass back by the fig tree again. again and this time it's withered. That's a lot going on. A fig tree just doesn't turn dead overnight. Jesus isn't picking on the fig tree. He's extending grace. He's using the fig tree as a teaching opportunity, a parable to where Israel was, to where the Jews and their hearts were. That he came to cleanse and he came to say, now I, I am now the temple. I am the place that you will come and you will worship. Don't let religion be like those commercials. Where they reel you in because they seem real glittery and nice. But you're not seeing the full picture. Jesus is the true and better temple. He is the one that he has called us to come into and to worship in Christ. We're only going to get to the Father through believing in Jesus. And so as believers, let us not be a hindrance to those that are outside the faith. Let us, be a, let us not try to restrict accessibility to God by creating boundaries or status quos that non-believers have to have to look like or act like or or be let us be a people that that make Christ accessible in every conversation that we have in every corner that we turn that Jesus is acceptable there is accessible and acceptable and if you're far from God, hear this. If this is a new truth and, and you're wrestling with God, you're not exactly sure where you stand with God. If this is new news. I, I urge you, if God is pricking your heart, 
And then just lean in. Let Him capture your heart. Embrace what He's teaching you, what He's saying to you. With that little conviction in your heart, lean into it. Ask questions. We as a body, we want to be a place where we can expose light and be able to ask any question. No matter how small or how big it is, we want to be able to walk with you through that. Don't be consumed. Don't be consumed by this world. Because it will drag you into false religion over and over again. And Jesus came to declare death to, that, to false religion. But he also came to declare life for those who would worship and believe in him. I ask us all to examine our hearts. And are we barren? And are we trying to cover ourselves with a fig leaf or a fig tree? And when really we don't have any fruit? And if that's you, just be honest and repent and say, God, I want to be fruitful. I want to be a servant. I want to be useful for the body of Christ. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. This sermon is just teaching. The Holy Spirit is the one that applies it to your heart. So ask God if you're there to, to do that inside your own heart. I've had to do that several times this week. God, change my heart. He came to make the Father accessible to everyone, to all nations. So let us pray in that way that Jesus Christ, that people would see the Father through the lens of the cross and that they'd know that God, the saving Yahweh, the Savior of Jesus Christ is here and He's accessible to save all people of all nations for those who believe. Please pray with me. God, thank You for Your Word. God, we, we confess we all have idols, we all have our false temples, our places that we go to, to find satisfaction, to be consumed by, uh, to run away from the real issues in this world, to buy and to sell. God, we all have those temples. And Lord, I pray that you would you'd prick every single one of our hearts this morning, God. That you'd come in and you'd cleanse that from us, Lord. And that we would know that the true temple is, is worship in you. That you declared that you were going to destroy the temple and you'd raise it up in three days, not by hands of man. That you, through the Father, would be raised from the dead and be our Savior. And that's accessible to everyone. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your, your teaching. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for a body that, that desire, desires that with great passion. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.